Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast about Canadian immigration law. This episode is a joint episode between Borderlines, hosted by Diano Kanachoff and I, and Kubir Kamal of Ask Kubir. Kubir is a regulated immigration consultant in Toronto. His YouTube channel, Ask Kubir, has almost 80,000 subscribers. He frequently posts videos that explain and analyze a wide array of Canadian immigration law topics including on both how to come to Canada and also tips for newcomers on how they can succeed here. Today's episode is about whether the Canadian immigration dream is fading and how it is fading in two aspects. The first is the odd paradox or irony in that while Canada is admitting a record number of permanent residents, it is also admitting a record number of temporary residents each year and the gap between those who can stay permanently and those who are unable to qualify for permanent residence is growing dramatically. Several provinces, it's international students, graduates, who are recently feeling left out. The second aspect that we discuss regarding the fading Canadian immigration dream is whether people who immigrate or move to Canada are ultimately let down, with a particular focus on housing and the high cost of living here. If you want to follow Kubir, uh, you can see his YouTube channel, Ask Kubir. Uh, his Twitter handle is the same, Ask Kubir. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, hello and welcome. My name is Kubair. I'm a CICC licensed immigration consultant. This channel is all about Canadian immigration news, updates, things you should do, things you definitely should not. And for a change, today I am excited to be part of a podcast which is also called as Borderlines, which is very, very famous within the immigration circles because, hey, lots of law professionals, practitioners usually listen to this. And this podcast is usually uh, all about Canadian immigration law, policies, and things like that. Something very, very serious kind of a stuff. Something where I go back to when I need to sort of get some clarity on certain issues. Uh, so without further ado, I would first like to host, or rather first invite the host for the Borderlines podcast, Stephen Murins. Welcome, Stephen, who is also our very regular uh, guest on this channel now. Hi, how's it going? Very well. Thank you, Stephen. Also, for people who do not know, is a very, very famous Canadian immigration lawyer who likes to do a lot of ATIP and probably also worries IRCC a lot because he gets all the inside scoop. I have gotten feedback about it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I would also like to welcome my second guest, Diana Okanach. I'm sorry, Diana, how do I pronounce your last name? Kim Matchoff. It's a tricky one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Diana is a partner at McRae Immigration uh, Law Firm. So if you guys are looking for some expert help out there, then these two are the guys to go to. Uh, Thank you so much, guys. uh, She's a co-host of Borderlines. 
Oh, she's a co-host of Border Lines, of course, and, and all, obviously have been in the business for a very long time, knows inside and out of uh, Canadian immigration, how it works, how it doesn't, and how you should be getting into it or not. Uh, but today's topic is away from the policy, away from all the, you know, the technical stuff about the law and more to do with Canadian dream, Canadian immigration dream. I wouldn't call it the Canadian immigration dream because that's something totally different. Canadian dream. So let me throw this at you guys first. What is a Canadian dream now that we talk about it? So I think the Canadian immigration dream, and by the way, one of the reasons why we're doing this uh joint episode is because of the ability to leave comments. So if there's people who are listening who have a comment that they want to leave, we do hope to like read and discuss them. Um, the Canadian immigration dream is essentially why people immigrate. And I think people immigrate to Canada, presumably because there's either a work opportunity here, family reunification, or and this is something we can talk about today, the standard of living may be higher than in someone's country of origin. Um, that, at least to me, has been the Canadian dream. What about, what do you think, Diana? Um, to me, I think uh, one thing that, uh, in my view, is is the Canadian dream is the sensibility of Canada and this idea of coming to a place where it's accepting and where uh, different political views will be um, will be accepted. And so this this notion of uh, this this warm accepting environment, uh, I think, is to me what the Canadian dream looks like. Okay, fair point. I mean, when you talk about the American dream, and I guess that's where the nomenclature comes up from uh, mm. when we talk about this term dream. And American dream probably is something like even if you are if you land in the country with twenty bucks in your pocket, mm. it is a very uh, realistic possibility that you could become a millionaire. Of course, with a lot of hard work. In in Canada, I guess it's more about finding a country which is inclusive, tolerant, diverse, multicultural, and of course where the so-called immigration process is so uh, standard, easy, welcoming. Would you agree that that's probably what you would sum it up I, as? I think that's definitely the perception people have, or at least had. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That that Canada is known for its sort of, we don't have a military, but we have a very strong humanitarian tradition. That's the kind mm-hmm. of the notion that is out there internationally about what Canada means. Canada is a place of reprieve. Canada is a place of acceptance. Um, That was sort of what I was getting at earlier. It's not so much about the financial benefits of certain, uh, of living here, but more that sense of inclusion and coherence that you described. Okay. Then why are we getting this feeling that Canadian dream is now fading? I mean, that's basically the topic for today's discussion. Why should we even be thinking that Canadian dream is fading? I mean, is Canada not inclusive anymore? Is Canada not welcoming anymore? Or is it the processes which is making it uh, a distinct possibility whether you will be able to achieve your Canadian dream or not? Yeah, I and I proposed the topic in part because I saw that you've done videos on Canadian PR being increasingly hard to get, as well yeah. as uh, videos on like the cost of living here, um, kind of how to thrive once someone comes to Canada, which I think is unique um, in the industry, by the way, that you both address how to get here, but then also how to succeed. What happens after after you get here? Yeah. Hmm. And I've noticed anyways in the past year, both in email inquiries and on social media, that there's increased frustration both with the process of getting here, the, you know, the CEC shutting down, the unpredictability of uh, express entry draws. We've talked about before the the gap between the number of people who get to come temporarily and the number of people who get to stay permanently. That gap is widening. Um, but then also once people are here, like rent is unbelievably high. You hear about international students, especially in the news now, who came and feel like they're essentially att- attending fake schools. Multiple people living in basement suites struggling to find work. And I've just noticed that in the past year, um, there's been an inc- I've just seen an increased number of posts and comments um, about this. And I'm curious if you've seen the same. Um, and just generally, if your thoughts are that in the last year, 
that there seems to have been a shift in how people perceive, especially international students, their ability to immigrate? Well, it, the record says that there are more than 1 million people who arrived in Canada last year. Uh, that's inclusive of the permanent residents as well as the temporary residents. Now, with, with a surge of 1 million people coming into Canada, and I don't think the real estate market or the real estate as such was equipped to, to handle this surge. Um, there is slowly a buildup of a bit of a negative sensitive sentiments around immigration from primarily from people who live in Canada because they directly get influenced with the fact that because 1 million people are coming into Canada, it basically now means that the real estate is getting more out of their hands, especially in Vancouver. I mean, you guys are in Vancouver. I'm here in Toronto and, and both these markets are, are, are now becoming notorious in terms of real estate. People can't afford to buy a house. People, hey, not even forget, forget about buying a house. It, even renting is becoming, you know, it's, it's out of your reach now. So there is a bit of a negative sentiment within the country itself. But even for people who are coming from outside, when you come to the country, obviously, there are three or four fundamental requirements, right? You need food, you need shelter, you need you know, clean air, uh, and, and then obviously an economic factor, which is finding a job or a job prospect. Once these are taken care of, then you start building your life around it. But when things like shelter as in housing by itself becomes such a difficult proposition or becomes something which is so expensive, then how do you, you know, tackle that? So I guess that's where the first one comes up from. Diana, your comment on that? Well, I mean, to me, this all began uh, sort of toward the beginning of my career. I saw a very significant shift toward a human capital model of immigration. And, um, you know, I, perhaps it wasn't quite so precise as that, but perhaps um, Canada, you know, the people in policy would have said that Canada's always been a human capital model system of immigration. But for me, there was a very specific moment at which I began to feel like immigrants being were being quantified in terms of their human capital value. How much money are you going to pump into the system? How are we going to quantify the value that you have in the Canadian immigration system? And I mean, again, this points-based immigration system has been there for as long as the federal skilled worker program has been like this. But I just feel like um, programs that were more um, that were more based on qualitative factors have really um, they've been deprioritized in favor of of these kinds of human capital models. Like even just the way that the CRS system through Express Entry now ranks everybody. So even the CEC is now doing this ranking. So just being here and having spent time, that is still being funneled through a system that's looking at all the other factors and is is ranking you against everybody else. So I feel like this, it, it began to feel to me like people applying to become permanent residents of Canada were like a bunch of products on a shelf. And the immigration mm. department was like, this is the one who has the greatest number of these factors that work out on my spreadsheet as being the person that we want the most. And again, I understand that when you're trying to do a supply and demand immigration system, you need to find a way to methodically quantify who is the immigrant that's going to be of the greatest value. But alongside all of this, at the same time, there was a, um, a turning down of the human interaction between the immigration department and the applicants, such that now there's literally zero interfacing between the applicant and the immigration department. And really, it feels like immigrants are interfacing with a machine, and they are truly interfacing with a machine. And so um, a lot to me has been lost in that process. I do understand efficiency. I understand that, you know, if you're trying to like figure out how to process how many applications in a period of time, you know, you need to you need to be efficient. But at the same time, I think that from the experiential perspective, immigrants feel like they're just another widget in a big machine and it's very depersonalized. Uh, so um, just speaking to it from that perspective, it's a very alienating experience. And so if we're talking about this society of inclusion and this multiculturalism, again, that experience is lost just from the user end when you're going through the Canadian immigration. Well, that's uh, Raj Sharma described it as interacting with the Borg. 
Yeah, it yeah. is 100%. I saw that uh, someone named Manpreet in the comments uh, noted that rent is skyrocketing high. And I'm curious if Manpreet is, uh, can add to that. Like, um, Did you know that when you came? Like, Were you surprised at how high rent was? Um, even in the time, like in the last decade, a decade ago, I was renting a studio apartment in the West End of Vancouver for about $800 a month. And that place now probably is going for, you know, 1500 I then eight years ago was renting a one-bedroom apartment in Yaletown paying 1400 a month that someone told me is over 2000 now. I'm sure. Uh, like, it's, it's something else. That when, experience, though, that you were describing of interacting with the Borg, when I applied for a temporary resident visa for Brazil, I applied in person. I was missing a document. And the person who worked at the front desk just asked me a few questions, took out a post-it note and said, okay, you're missing this document, but I'm just going to write here that you've met with me and I've approved this so that the people in the back will know to just process your application as fast as possible. And I thought, wow, this is so different from how like Canada operates and how it treats people. And, and you would wonder, there are so many people who apply to the U.S. every single day, week, month, year, right? And and they still manage to operate an in-person interview and are quite successful with it. Yeah. Uh, why does Canada choose to be, uh, as you said, interfacing with the machine? Yeah. I think form and content are like the the way that you administer the system does speak to the actual culture of that of that system. And I think uh, the disjointed way that it's being offered through these portals and without any human interaction and the sense of alienation that people experience going through this process, it does actually, um, it does impact on the immigrant experience. I think that, you know, it, um, I, I think that that needs to be taken into consideration that it's a very alienating experience. I mean, as to add to Stephen's point, for example, if you are with a, in an interview with the U.S. immigration officer uh, applying for a visa, you can still make a case for yourself. You can still explain. You can talk about your documents. You can talk about your business, your background, and at least sort of have some information given to the visa officer so they can make a decision. Yeah. Here, even after you have provided all kinds of income statements and background and employment details and all ties to home country, you still get a refusal for a visit visa saying that you will not return back. So I mean, um, what by a machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have, like, reasons. One thing I wanted to add to this is that I'm feeling more and more that like applying through the Canadian immigration process is like a game of gotcha. You know, like, oh, you forgot to mention that? Oh, gotcha. You made a misrepresentation. And um, I just don't know how we ended up here. Like, I do understand the purpose of misrepresentation proceedings is to prevent people from taking advantage of the system. But the number of times that I've got cases where somebody has just literally forgotten about a U.S. visitor visa, they just got refused when they were a teenager, they just forgot to mention it, like, and then all of a sudden their entire Canadian dream is like scuppered because now they're, they're dealing with an admi admissibility allegation. And people that like have tried to do everything right that are suffering like really serious anxiety that in the future this thing is going to come up and calling me again and again like can we deal with this and so I just I wonder what message we're trying to send like if if there was an in-person interview and it's like oh right 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 I totally forgot about that if they could just ask them a question are you sure you've never applied anywhere and then like hold on a second let me think yes you're right there was one other one not like gotcha but like, okay, well, let's just add that to your form. Like, this is you know, not a big deal. I have through uh, ATIP a training manual from something called the Complex Case Unit, which explicitly says that officers should not find people inadmissible for misrep if they missed one visa refusal from the United States. And obviously that that, that is not being applied. Um, oh, like I've been in hearings all the way up to the appeal division and, yeah. you know, federal court judicial reviews over this stuff, you know? There's um, a bunch of people in the comments now are chiming there, in about uh, the rent. All information online during my process was old and only rosy picture. Reality is different. Immigration should be linked with housing. And then Shatan <laughs> says that in Halifax, it's 2000 for a two-bedroom apartment. The other thing that people are saying in the comments, kind of to summarize um, what Khalid and Sarab are saying, is that the process is also very random um, and unpredictable. Like... 
if you think back to before express entry with just the Canadian experience class, people coming to Canada had some degree of certainty, right? You get a job that's skilled and you meet a language test. That's the Canadian experience class. After one year, you can apply for PR. Then express entry throws it a bit aloof with um, the ranking systems. Points though were a lot lower than they are now. Like I think it was uh, in 2016 or 17, points were, I think they dipped to as low as 415 somewhat regularly before soaring. And there just is this real unpredictability now. Look at British Columbia, where the provincial nomination program, speaking of inflation, you used to get, so I don't know um, how the Ontario program as well could be, but in British Columbia, British Columbia has its own ranking system in the PMP and wage is probably the most important factor. And in 2017, the top points, if you had a job that paid $100,000 or more, you had top points in wage. 2022, they revised it. Now the top figure is 145,000-ish for wage, which, you know, your international graduates who kind of came here on this promised study, postgraduate work permit, work for a year or two, they're going to struggle to earn 145,000 in their starting jobs, right? Like struggle is an understatement. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this I, comment I, about the, the taking, the planning and executing steps towards qualifying for permanent residence. This is really the challenge when you're trying to assist someone. I feel like there was a level of transparency in the past where somebody came in, you could start working with them at the stage where they were still abroad. You're like, here, you here we map out a plan. You're going to get a study permit, post-grad work permit. Then you're going to work, blah, blah, blah. You're going to do this, and then you're going to qualify. But as this comment from HK is, is that right now I have no sense of where they're going to stand by the time they graduate and they have their post-grad work permit, um, whether they're going to qualify for permanent residence at that point in time, which is very challenging, especially if you're traveling and you've got kids and they're going to be now in school and integrated. Like, it's not just as easy as like, okay, well, if it doesn't work out, then you just pick up and move them to another country because at that point, like... Language considerations are different. They might no longer reintegrate easily. I'm hearing this from a lot of clients from China. They can't just like pick up and go back to school in China after having Mm -hmm. missed out in that school system for three years. Um, And like there's another comment from Ravinda Rao, uh, Ravindra Rao saying, um, you know, do you, if you're at a CRS 470, do you take further steps or do you wait for the score to come down? Um, to me, you don't ever wait. Um, you're always <laughs> proactively like, this is not working for me right now. What can I do now to fix it? Because otherwise, you know, what what happens if they start putting in or, or when they start putting in occupation specific draws and then all of a sudden you don't Uh, you don't anymore qualify for a draw. So you just really need to work with the rules as they are right now and then be adaptive. You know what, now, now that we're getting to the, to the, to the heart of the matter, let's, let's not deviate, but get into this, this crux as in there are, as I said, more than 1 million people came into Canada last year itself, including permanent residents and and the temporary residents. At this point of time, uh, when we just did a very rough calculation, there are, to the tune of nearly 1.5 million temporary residents, actually more, but I'm just taking a conservative number. 1.5 temporary, 1.5 million temporary residents in Canada, and the annual immigration quotas, as we already know, are you know not touching half a million at least for the next two years until they get to that number. And of this, the economic immigration is about half. Uh, how will these people ever become permanent residents? Or rather, how can we ever absorb this larger number into becoming permanent residents? Also keeping in mind that each year you will have new international students, new foreign workers, spouses of the international students and the foreign workers who will also continue to get added to this number. And of course, everybody whose visas have been approved from Ukraine haven't yet arrived. Well, and there's a, yeah, I don't know if they actually... It looks like there's a hard cutoff of when they have to arrive by, which in and of itself is sort of a weird way to treat people, right? Like, oh, you're from a war-toned corn country. Canada is going to open the doors to let you apply. Yeah. Make your decision get out of that now. War-torn, yeah, make your decision yeah. now. Get out of the country, leave where I, from what I understand, it's illegal to leave. But no, that gap, I don't, um, mm-hmm. COVID-19, you know, it took a pandemic to reduce the cap. 
that gap between the number of people who arrive temporarily and stay permanently. It took a pandemic to level out the numbers a bit, but now it looks like it's exploding again, which sort of is the other question. Like we talk about how cruel uh, and unfair the system can be, but does Canada need to worry when there are that many people wanting to come and demand will always exceed supply? Like, does it actually, you know, for all our complaints, can Canada just say, well, demand will always exceed supply. Even if you look at the comments, there's some people who are addressing, you know, the high cost of living um, and some of these like things that we've been discussing. A lot are just saying, well, what about this immigration issue or how would I resolve this? Like demand is huge. So should Canada care about any of these issues that we're talking and how IRCC, you know, is random and unfair when that demand remains very high? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, I guess the first point here is that uh, when a lot of people think it's an entitlement. First of all, that, that, that notion needs to go away. It's, it's not an entitlement, first of all. Because that's where the fairness and unfairness comes into play. And second, When you say entitlement, what are you referring to? The... Well, for example, uh, people feel entitled to a draw. People feel entitled oh, okay. to a specific draw. People feel entitled to being invited. People being, feel invited to you know, certain things in terms of the processing. That that's what I'm referring to. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make that clear. But at the end of the day, another thing which is very important is that Canada will do everything which is in favor and the benefit of Canada, not because of, of people. So when the whole process is being assigned and the whole process is being designed, it is in favor of, at that point of time, whatever the, the people in the think tank thought was in benefit of Canada. It's yeah. never, ever going to be uh, for the benefit of the permanent residents who are coming into Canada. They have been chosen or they have been given the privilege to become permanent residents by way of the factor denomination as to how they were selected. And, and that's how they were processed. But to sort of say that now that you are permanent residents, we owe you this. I, I guess that's not how you would be looking at. I'm not saying Canada, you cannot hold Canada responsible in terms of what it owes you uh, in terms of uh, uh, the inclusiveness in terms of the opportunities that it presents to you, and of course the new immigrant centers that that are done, by, I mean that are funded by the government. But in its entirety, when you look at how a lot of people who are not able to make it look at it as as why did I not get through? But when you come to sort of laying a blame on somebody, I would say uh, Canada does have a little bit of you know blame to sort of take on, and this is when you go out and promote to the whole world yes. that if you study in Canada, that pathway will lead you to become a permanent resident. 100%. They, they don't say that this pathway may possibly sort of, there is no speculation there. It's sort of guaranteed. And yeah. the agents who sell these study programs across the world, the Canadian education systems, uh, institutions, when they go out and promote their, their programs to the world, they always present the study in Canada as a definitive pathway to becoming permanent residents. Yeah. Would you blame the 1 million students who are now in Canada and are now finding it absolutely impossible to get through? Yeah, for, for example, sure. in India, one of the most popular programs is to study a two-year diploma in Canada after completing their schooling, fresh out of school. So once they have completed the two years of diploma in Canada, uh, these students only have a two-year diploma as education for which they will get any points these guys are stuck they they will not have enough points to deal with this high express entry scores 
the only pathways would possibly be through the employers uh, who will support them with any of the PNP programs. And then the employers have identified that. And of course, they find this a very good way of abusing the system and either hiring them at lower wages or, or, you know, holding them ransom that we will not give you documents unless you do this, this and this. We will not pay you the overtime. There are horror stories across. Yeah. Where do these students go? What is their fault? So when we talk about them having done their research, okay, they did their research. They did check the websites. They, they went to different blogs. They, they spoke to different people. They spoke to alumni, everybody. And everybody said, yes, it's a possible system. And now they're here two years later and they're out of luck. What do they do? So Canadian dream for them is pretty much dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. I- I think you're really onto something here that it's the lack of transparency in the way that the programs are presented. And from what you're saying, too, that um, that cohort that came in before the introduction of Express Entry, it was like that, that if you came in, you got your post-grad work permit, you would meet your one year of experience, and then that was it. There was no score to meet. It was just like your language test, your diploma, your one year of experience, and then you're good to go, you know? And so it's when that predictability came off, uh, that really there was no direct relationship between having the work experience, having the Canadian diploma, and what your permanent residence outcomes would be. But that hasn't changed the way the programs are being promoted around the world. And the the fact is that the universities are using these international student fees to subsidize programming mm-hmm. across the entire university. And so there does feel like there's like an inherent dishonesty to the way that this whole thing is going on. Um, Canada is benefiting from this. And yet, you know, it's, a, it's it all brings to mind this kind of slogan that came up um, in the 1980s around caregiver program, which was like good enough to work, good enough to stay. And so there's always been this tension in Canadian immigration policy around temporary residency and permanent residency and pathways to permanent residency. And this was a much more, this was a conversation that was being had much more openly in previous years. I feel like now it's sort of like we're not actively engaging in this conversation in quite the same way. But like once you've brought somebody in, like I think um, under the Harper government, there was a sort of unapologetic um, attitude towards like temporary is temporary, permanent is permanent. Um, and there was like, you know, not everybody should expect to be granted permanent residency. And I think in a way, like whether I agree with that or disagree with that, there was at least um, candor about that. And um, I just feel like right now, there's not a lot of candor about that. In fact, there's a bit of subterfuge about that. Like there's like, you know, come, welcome, blah, blah, blah. But it's dishonest because in fact, as you've said, just looking at the numbers, a small proportion will actually have the option to qualify and move forward as permanent residents. And the rest need to be like, is this going to be worthwhile, even if that Canadian dream for permanent resettlement cannot be realized? But it is now, um, you know, the the cherry picking model means that only the best and the brightest, um, the most innovative, um, not even necessarily the best and the brightest, but only the ones that actually find a way into this system will be successful in remaining permanently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've kind of like in in the the Trudeau government has almost come, I don't know, full circle or. Uh, the tone has definitely changed from like that 2017, you know, when Trudeau first got elected, he had that or within a year or two of getting elected, there was that famous tweet where I think he said something along the lines of like, to those fleeing persecution or war, Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. To five years later, the safe third country agreement is being essentially redrawn because people listen to his tweet. And right now it's illegal for um, foreign nationals to buy houses in Canada completely yeah. with like several exemptions. Yeah. Um, but just the, uh, the tone and tenor yeah, um, I totally has agree definitely changed. And one other thing I got to say about this, like I just have never understood why they took away the ability for somebody to make a refugee claim and do a humanitarian and compassionate application concurrently. To me, that is like, I've never understood why that was considered to be at cross purposes. Um, Refugee claims, I mean, I understand that this is not everybody's, um, like, 
they're super, super hard. But the fact that somebody might not meet their level of persecution doesn't mean they're not facing serious, serious hardships. So to have both of those um, questions adjudicated at the same time, like it's not, it does not delay removal by any means. And so the fact that the Trudeau government has never canceled that, which was implemented by the Harper government, to me means that a lot of these promises are disingenuous because um, there should not be disentitled to a pro, they should not be disentitled to making a, an agency application concurrently. And so those are just basic things that could have been done at the beginning. Um, and so, yeah, all these platitudes around persecution and all of that sort of thing, the, um, anyways, I, I can stop there <laughs> before I go into my full on rant. <laughs> That's pretty good. But allow me to play a short clip, Sean Fraser, where he is almost under the breath saying that all students may not become permanent residents. Just, just okay, okay. But when it comes to permanent residency, we've developed some new tools that are going to help better spread out people across Canada. We've had the largest increase in the numbers of people who will come through the provincial nominee program in the history of the uh, annual immigration levels plan just this past year. In addition, we're increasing the numbers through regional programs like the rural and northern program or the Atlantic immigration program. And we've developed a new selection tool through the Federal Express Entry System last year that will take effect in the second half of this year. This is going to allow us to select workers, not just based on the highest score, but based on the sector that they plan to work in and the region of Canada that they're going to. So if we come to understand that certain provinces or regions have the capacity to successfully welcome more people and have certain sectors like healthcare or home building that are in demand, that we'll be able to select the workers who are not just the highest scoring, but who are in greatest need in communities that have the capacity to, to house them and to provide services to them. Oh, that's quite the tech on this uh, platform. <laughs> yeah, that that wasn't the exact clip. I'm sure I've lost that one because I've got so many of Sean Fraser's clip on my on my. Yeah, uh, but I mean, here. even what he's talking about there, right, kind of ties into what we're saying, and it's similar. You hear in uh, tax circle debates, right? Like, does it make this more sense next... to lower income taxes or have a bazillion little credits? You know, does yeah, it make that, sense that, for that, the point that, threshold that, to come down or to start like? Hey, if you live in Tuktoyaktatak and we've determined that that you know city in Northwest Territories can accommodate people, we'll help the people there. When like broad swaths of people, you know, they could also just lower the points threshold. Uh, yeah, but I guess what he was referring to here uh, is is directly related to Bill C nineteen implementation. I'm not sure if you guys uh, are quite familiar with that because it's 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 coming. Uh, it's anticipated second half of the year. And with the Bill C-19, what, they, what IRCC is, is destined to do is create separate categories within the express entry pool itself, whereby then they would conduct the draws within those categories, thereby, you know, the, the CRS score going slightly, or not slightly, but quite low within those categories. So, for example, if you are a construction worker in Toronto with one year of work experience, uh, construction workers will not be an express entry. My bad. If yeah. you're a construction supervisor. Supervisor. Yeah, or not even in Toronto, probably Nova Scotia, and, and you have one year of Canadian work experience, then they would make a category of those workers and then invite from that. And obviously, then the CRS scores are going to be quite low because how many construction workers, uh, supervisors would be there in yeah, Nova yeah. Scotia? It's going to be like workers. almost nothing. Yeah, it's if you qualify the, in CEC, it will basically be your shoe in if you're in that knock. It's, uh, I mean, we've seen in British Columbia, there's now special draws for early childhood educators. Yeah. What's the result? The points for everyone else creeps up. I mean, and going back to what we'd have to tell like prospective international students, it'll be, you come to Canada, you pay high tuition, you then get your postgraduate work permit, hopefully find a good employer. And then if you're the flavor of the month, you may get uh, an invitation to apply for permanent residence. Yeah. Um, Well, so when they first introduced express entry, like a lot um, a lot of the lawyers and consultants did like they were very much raging and kind of appearing and before standing committee and all this kind of stuff about the transparency and the rule of law and all this kind of thing that the lack of predictability that it's essentially um, going to be gone. And we are really seeing that come to full fruition now, essentially, uh, and this is something that I keep seeing coming up in the comments is that um, that really what the rules are now is don't call us, we'll call you. Like if we decide that we want you at the particular moment that you're ready to apply, we'll tell you. But 
in terms of whether or not uh, you can plan in order to ready for your, yourself for that, you can make a sort of some basic estimates, but whether or not those estimates are going to come to fruition is not something that you can really predict. It's an evolving thing at any given time. Like if all of a sudden this one particular market crashes and we saw this in Alberta, for example, you know, an oil sands worker, yes, 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 that's great. That's an excellent pathway. And then all of a sudden that market crashes and then that's not a good way to try and get a, um, to get a visa or to get a, to, to land as a permanent resident. So it's an ever evolving thing. So um, in terms of advising now, it's very point in time and you have to just keep um, updating, updating, updating. Okay. That's not going to work. I got to, you know, keep yeah. moving the target. Um, and so, um, but that just is what it is. And unless there's an entire cultural shift we are very much entrenched in this kind of express entry system. And it's not just about the technology, it's about the philosophy around express entry. And it really goes back to what Colbert said, which is that we want what we want when we want it. And we're not apologizing for the fact that we get to choose. We are the choosers and you get to, you get to either come if we want you or don't if you, you know, like we're not making any promises. But again, I'm, I'm interested in, in, that, in this clip uh, because I, I don't find that there's generally a lot of openness and accountability for the fact that that is truly the position that the, the department is taking. But as we move forward, what promise does that hold for the international students? And I keep coming back to the international students because they do form form a large part of the community who's yeah. now feeling cheated, who's now The other, uh, I mean, the growth right. industry seems to be, I don't know if um, this is the same in Ontario, and I've just started to hear about it recently here, but, you know, like you get points if you have a degree and you get more points if you have two or more credentials like a certificate diploma or degree one of which was at least three years or something and from what i understand there's been like increased interest in one month typing certificates one month like random little certificates just to like go through the hoops of meeting these artificial like points thresholds um and is it really like is that how immigration programs should work where people are finding these bizarre and little like niche ways uh, to just struggle for struggle for a few more points. I'm not sure that that's how they should be, but that's certainly where they're at right now. Like I would say if somebody is a student and they're looking for a way to immigrate, you know, and they're like, they're looking at their situation right now in terms of they are about to graduate. I don't think that my score is looking good. I would be like, is there a different program that you could go into that would get you set up to do like, you know, a lot of people, um, are getting their postgraduate work permit at the wrong time. Um, maybe when it's not for the full length of time that they would need in order to get as much time to do their work experience as possible, to get as many points as they possibly can. But again, it's sort of like, okay, is now the right time to get it? Um, you know, maybe there's another program that would allow you to work in a more specialized field that is more likely to get you work experience in one of those occupational fields that Canada is likely to be looking for. I feel like students have to be very entrepreneurial and I mean that not in the sense of like entrepreneurial like starting their own business I mean entrepreneurial in terms of looking at what Canada cares about right now and thinking about you know like you know it might be healthcare workers and that's been something that's been very high priority for Canada since the pandemic you know like yes okay if I can pick up something that will allow me to be a lab technician you know what can I do in a short period of time I think it's going to be a while before those health occupation type um um uh, knocks uh, come out of favor, you know, that might be one thing that I could do and just like, okay, that's it. Am I willing to do that for this period of time? Is that a good use of my funds? But again, not everybody has the funds that they can spend just prolonging this and trying to fit into the uh, the square peg into the round hole, if you know what I'm saying. And I mean, the caregiver program is actually like an example of what you were just talking about in a way, because there's the shortage in healthcare. And for years, we had a program where essentially a lot of people with healthcare backgrounds, nurses, were coming to work as caregivers, which is fine. But at the same time, they weren't able to work in an area that has a critical shortage. Yeah. Um, and by the time they finish the program, their credentials are too old to requalify. Yeah. They would often have to go back to school. So, 
And a lot of but, them wouldn't because then they couldn't afford to because they'd been working minimum wage for such a long period of time. Healthcare is definitely finding a lot of favor. I mean, in different yeah. provinces, especially at this point of time, Ontario is is really you know going pretty strong in inviting people who are from the healthcare industry. BP as well. Yeah. Well, they just amended express entry to let doctors qualify. Which, yeah. if you think about it, is crazy that doctors before who worked for public health authorities didn't qualify for express entry. No, they did. I mean, you, you need to clarify that as self-employed individuals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's basically all doctors that's, yeah. they always <laughs> incorporate personally. Oh, not always, yeah. but very frequently. But this is something which has always baffled me. Why is Canadian immigration system so much against self-employed individuals? Why yeah. wouldn't you encourage more entrepreneurs to come and immigrate to Canada? Why wouldn't you? Well, because, uh, go ahead. Well, the thing that also like, if the, it's not even that they're against entrepreneurs. They're against entrepreneurs here. Self-employment abroad counts towards Canadian. Yeah, no, in Canada, I mean, that would even be like if, they, if it was because it's difficult to prove or something. Yeah, foreign self-employment would be like I, I actually don't, uh, I, I don't understand why. Wouldn't it be the same if it was foreign or Canadian? I mean, self-employment. If you're if you're accepting self-employment outside Canada, why not inside Canada, where you still have a little bit more authority in asking for the CRA reports or the credit report or PD sevens or whatever that might be. Yeah, versus accepting self-employment outside Canada. It's, it's just a really a good more. question. I honestly like I've never really thought. I have an instinct that the answer is because of proof um, that they that they don't feel equipped to evaluate whether or not that um, enterprise is viable. Um, but again, that doesn't actually make sense, given what you've said, that you can use foreign self-employment, but yes. not, not domestic self-employment. But again, I really don't understand because I guess that perhaps it goes into this philosophy around human capital is that like, you know, you're supposed to be contributing to some Canadian enterprise. But I just, again, I, there's no rationale that I can offer that really fully satisfies me. I mean, if I'm you really want to step back, the whole knock concept. Like, like, I'm sorry, go ahead, Steve. Well, if you like, I mean, if you can even step back further, like the whole knock concept, the whole yeah. idea that like, I was thinking about this when the, um, these are like when uh, PSAC went on strike, like that, how much effort goes into figuring oh, out someone's knock code. Yeah, or refusals someone, because I don't believe you're in this knock, you know? Like, yeah, and it's what, like, what is that? What's, what, what are we, like, someone could be working in Canada. I mean, you'd think that would be, like, the base, you know, that's sufficient. And you can tell that even the, pro, like, a lot the provinces don't like the knock codes because a lot of them just get excluded, right? Like, oh, all skilled knocks except food service supervisor. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah. Um, there's so much, like, bizarre... Yeah. It's one thing if it's like, is it skilled or is it not skilled? Okay, fine. I get that, you know. Um, But uh, the idea of getting it down to the microscopic level makes little sense. I mean, wouldn't you say, for example, if a person who has come (laughs) to Canada and set up a store uh, and has now employing four people, he can should take advantage and say, okay, you have now created four jobs. Well done. Uh, but anyway, so that's that's another well, you know, thing. so years ago, a provincial nomination program asked. Um, they said, "Oh, we're looking to like highlight certain provincial nominees who've done really well. Like, do um, you know? Do you have anyone who may qualify?" And I said, "Well, yeah, this person has uh, started a business and employs like twenty-five to fifty people." Yeah. And the response was, "Oh, well, but they were nominated as a carpenter, so they're no longer in the same occupation." So I'm not, oh <laughs> I was like, goodness. well, come on, like, like you got but I mean, it is the, the, the last comment that came up was this is the reality, but it's disheartening. I, I feel like a bit of an ass when I'm, when I, somebody calls me and they're like, I'm running this business. I would like to move my company to Canada, you know, um, 
you know, we go through things like, I mean, I'm talking about situations where it doesn't make sense to do an intercompany transfer or something like that, but they just want a direct path to permanent residency right away when you're like, actually, it makes most sense for you to work for somebody else. You know, that seems like a super counterintuitive piece of advice. Like that doesn't make sense at all for this human being, for their career, for their personal life, like for anything, not even for Canada, because they're going to make a bigger contribution once they are actually bringing their entrepreneurial skills. But at the same time, like as their advocate, I'm trying to find them the path of least resistance. And the fact that immigration policy causes me to give them options that make no sense for anyone um, other than to fit them into this system, um, just that speaks to me of a big problem. Oh my goodness, working in the film industry, don't get me started. (laughs) My husband is a producer in the VFX business and like, I just don't know I, I like I don't I, I just don't think they care. Like yeah. m- yes, they'll get you work permits, but I just I, they just don't seem to. Have... Well, even the work permits have been uh, chipped away for the film industry. I mean, and it's going back like a lot of the comments are. It's really like you know if people were asking any chance for four forty three score CEC, hard to predict. Um, you know, five years ago, yes, four forty three CEC would have for sure. Viable. I mean, do you remember um, back in twenty thirteen there was the the PG, and this is going to like really stun some of the audience, but if you had a postgraduate work permit, your first LMIA was both recruitment exempt and wage exempt. Um, oh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah. The postgraduate work permit LMIAs, where it was a whole stream to try to make it easier for international graduates. But I think uh, they're going back to doing was that? I mean, not exactly the same. That's that's what is being planned by ESDC. Service Canada is looking to, uh, and, and along with IRCC. So you will not be required to go through the advertising requirements or the LMI requirement, uh, not the same stringent manner, if you have already been working for the same employer with the same job. Yeah, no. so they're talking, no. uh, they're the trusted employer LMIA, they're talking about it. It really would just be like, I mean, the pendulum kind of comes full circle. It would just be bringing back what existed before 2014. Um, and I mean, I guess that's kind of like the the one message though that I do give people as far as hope is like, people need to understand, yeah, it will be unpredictable, but the pendulum always seems to swing back and forth. And there seems to be a recognition in some circles at least that the pendulum hopefully will swing back to being a little more easy for people to stay. That being yeah. said, right now, the overall discourse is like record number of people coming and housing not keeping up would be the only reason to slightly pause on that. But again, they haven't suggested yeah. caps on well, uh, temporary entry. Yeah, I mean, it's the same issue. Um, we are talking about the issue with the film industry. It's the same issue with um, with certain occupations. I see somebody asking about geologists. I found a lot of the same kinds of issues. Like certain industries just have real challenges because of the way the the roles tend to be structured. Um, you know, um, there was a question about whether or not whether there's a chance of geologists getting an ITA after C19. I don't know. I mean, it's again, everyone is kind of crystal ball gazing mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in terms of what are the occupations going to be. Um, that doesn't strike me as being one that I think is likely. I don't know if anybody else has any other thoughts about that one. But um, but yeah, I I'm just sure. I feel like. Yeah. The other thing that's coming is uh, supposedly, I don't know how realistic it is, but by the end of the year, there's talk of a free trade agreement with India, or at oh, least the first stage. Well, yeah. and they're saying it's going to include uh, labor mobility. Wow. Uh, I don't okay. know that, what it will be. be on, like, that, that could be uh, definitely for a certain segment of your, a certain percentage of your audience, like the negotiations about that. It was announced earlier in the week that they're expecting something later this year. Um, and that there may be, I don't know if it'll be similar to the one with Mexico or the one with Korea, but some sort of labor mobility, uh, free trade agreement for Canada and India. Yeah. Well, that comment is not about the the free trade agreement. I think that comment is more to do with the processes, I guess. Uh, but again, going back to and I, I guess we're going to wrap up very soon, but when, when I was talking about Ontario showing a lot of interest to the healthcare workers, uh, they have, they're inviting in thousands. But what happens to these people when they come to Canada? I mean, 
they can still not practice. I mean, a doctors cannot practice medicine until they are licensed and certified. Ontario is looking to accelerate the program, but they are looking to accelerate. We haven't yeah. seen much happening in that aspect. So that that the old age old uh, cliche about uh, doctors driving Uber, yeah. Yeah. that is something which again becomes. I mean, are you are you encouraging that, or or are you not going to do something about making it easier for them to transition so that they can perform the job that they should be performing? Because I mean. we know it healthcare what is the situation and down in, in in bc i've been reading a lot that you can't find a family doctor that easy people have to wait for yeah. two years three years there are uh, small communities who are offering 100000 signing bonuses to doctors who are willing to move into those communities yeah. and this is insane right and and then yet we create all these hurdles and then they tell them hey canada wants you why don't you come make canada your home canadian canadian immigration dream is still alive and kicking and and uh, and then mm-hmm. we create all these hurdles all these challenges so that these guys just get demotivated yeah i mean, I mean unfortunately sorry yeah i yeah. i've heard that like they're working on the credentialing issue that's a refrain that i've heard since i began practicing mm-hmm. um you know i do hear that there's some movement in granting temporary licenses to people in the healthcare field um i just i feel like there needs to be a very solid commitment especially in the healthcare field um to really uh you know put their money where their mouth is i feel like there's still a lot of fear um around you know the quality of healthcare around but i think that there's there's also bigger political issues around um um just about around the healthcare system in general i think that um there are concerns that are raised always by the the unions and that sort of thing about integration of new of new healthcare workers but i think that something needs to be done to actually yeah. um, move forward on those issues and i know we've been saying that for ages and ages but um i think the pandemic really showed up that this stuff needs to be moved forward um because we're not able to respond and our healthcare system is truly in a crisis state and everybody knows that um and so um you know the time is nigh the other one on that i mean i don't want to get like into the weeds of politics but mm. you might have both major by major i mean the i mean i'm sure the ndp supported as well but the two major political parties on side on this like Poly, pierre polyev leader of the conservatives i think has basically promised that credential recognition will go from years to 60 days or there would be like penalties to anyway um so there may be like a political atmosphere to address this uh multi-party consensus that being said like uh, we've done on borderlines all our election campaign reviews and for at least the last two election campaigns both the conservatives and the liberals have said a pathway to permanent residency for all foreign workers that hasn't happened oh, and a trusted employer program in the global talent stream that's so specific that you'd think that they would actually have yeah, the legislation or the idea like drafted that also hasn't happened yeah um, but i think like i think the pendulum is going to shift especially like in british i don't know like i don't follow ontario healthcare but like british really, columbia is announced that we're going to be sending cancer patients to Bellingham because there's no radiologists here or yeah. something like the the pendulum I think will shift very soon on foreign credential recognitions. Yeah. yeah that's Maria's sharing their healthcare horror story. Yeah, they really are horror stories right now and um and this really does show up like the supply is just not there um in Canada and so um i see it really as a failing of the immigration system that we're not um more actively figuring out how to to address the credentials issues i mean barring the the charter is there no way of of diversifying the people to move into different provinces because somehow people tend to stick to ontario or or bc i mean once they're a permanent resident more. they can go wherever they want the yeah, provincial nominee bar, programs are kind of bar the charter, i mean that's that's the only thing sort of that sort of sticks because for example if you're a provincial nominee program people land and they leave they land and they leave and, and that's why you see so many restrictions coming up yeah um, do you yeah, see british columbia is really pushing regional like i think i did in british columbia's provincial nomination program 
if you go to school outside the lower mainland and outside um, Fraser Valley as well and get a job offer and have experience working outside Metro Van Fraser Valley, I think that's equivalent to like $70,000 in salary in the BCPMP points ranking systems. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. But what happens after you become permanent resident? Yeah, I mean, the thing about that is that I don't think that that's something that can be enforced. And I mean, if there was never any intention to go to that province, then they could make a misrepresentation finding. Mm -hmm. I'm no advocate for misrepresentation findings. I already feel like that's that's a provision that is radically overused in the immigration scheme. Um, You know, and I think that Ultimately, the, the incentives to people to remain there need to go beyond the fear of misrepresentation. It has to be incentives, the stuff that Steve is talking about, you know, salary incentives or something that's beyond that, something that actually draws them to remain and become integrated in that community, even if it's for a period of time after they become landed. And then, you know, yeah. if two years they're there and then they decide that's not for them and then they can move, but like just you know, you must promise or fear that we're going to come after your permanent resident status. That just doesn't work. And I don't think that that is the philosophy that we want to put forward. I think yeah, the although the way like with the way the PMP gone. is doing it in BC, like by that time that they've gotten all those extra points, those people will have been, you know, outside of Metro Van for six years. Maybe they're looking at the uh, cost of rent here and everything. And, you know, maybe they do think like, forget it. I'll stay here. I've been here exactly. six years now. Well, that's exactly right. Even if only uh, 20% of them stay, then they're still, um, it's still um, going to end up diversifying throughout the province. But um, Does Ontario have similar regional programs? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I mean, they do give a lot of benefit. For example, within the Ontario program itself, if you're from the Northern Ontario, if you have a job offer in Northern Ontario, you get more points than if you were within GDA. Yeah. And if you're within Toronto, you get zero points. So yeah, they do. They do try to encourage that. Uh, and, and then the draws happen. And then again, but then needing a support from the employer where the employer has to sign a specific form I guess that's the biggest hurdle that a lot of people have in trying to, because the form requires the employers to disclose certain financial and employee data, which a lot of employers don't want to. That creates another this whole thing. But we are at a two o'clock mark, time to wrap it up. (laughs) But Deanna, closing comments from your side, because Canadian dream is fading. That's what we are saying as a statement, not even as a question, Uh, more about how difficult things are becoming, more so for the uh, temporary residents in Canada, but what what do you think as closing comments for this subject? Hmm, it's a tricky one. I would say um, I think right now um, my impression is that the Canadian dream is a little bit tarnished. Um, I would say that um, people need to be modest in their expectations of the Canadian immigration system. Um, the things that we've said are um, that not everyone is welcomed with open arms. And I think that people need to be reasonable in their expectations. And I think um, I do a lot of expectation management in my practice. So I think you need to be pragmatic, you need to be strategic, and you need to be you know, flexible, um, uh, moving with the moment by moment changes. Um, that's really it. And I just, my only wish um, going forward is that we had a bit more sense of clarity and openness from the department as to what their actual vision is. Stephen? Yeah, I've been thinking about the uh, the entitlement question. I mean, the law says that, you know, people who come here temporarily don't have a right to stay, right? The courts say that, the department views it. I do think it's very unfortunate that the marketing contradicts that. Totally. Um, I don't think, I, I mean, and again, looking through the comments, like there's a lot of the comments are just, how do I get more points? What about this program? Like, Demand will probably always exceed supply. And I think it lets Canada get away with being complacent. Um, And I think there's a degree of complacency. This gets talked about in quite a few different contexts within Canada. Um, I think that complacency can be cruel and unfortunate. But if people come here, um, you know, I'd say like... do the research uh, so that there's no surprises and kind of hit the ground running to look for long-term strategies almost on day one. Yeah. Agreed. Well, and that, don't get rigid. Well, yeah. Don't get rigid. Well, I, I guess this is a subject, uh, this is a topic which we will constantly debate on, talk about, you know, 
ponder over it and, and try and figure out what best people can do, trying to figure out who are looking to come to Canada. Uh, yes, Canadian dream is fading, but I guess it's becoming, I, I wouldn't say it's fading entirely in any which ways. I think the whole process has become more competitive, not as the process by itself hasn't changed. It's the same process, but it's just that the demand and supply, as Stephen was talking about, uh, it's just made it so much more competitive that if you are not able to score high on those factor points, then you probably will get left out unless some changes are are done. And, and Bill C-19, once that's implemented later this year, we do not know how, how it's going to look like. The blueprint is not out yet. Uh, and, and Stephen and I, we've discussed that before. I mean, and we, we said that they are not obligated to, to announce those categories, but I think somewhere within the document, it says that uh, IRCC must announce those categories before they, they start conducting those draws. So once I guess that information is out, we will have a much better insight into how the processes will look like. But thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, Gianna. It was lovely having you here. And I hope we can do this again whenever you yeah. guys have time. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, I, I, I wish you all the best and, and hope to see you around soon. Yes, thanks for having us. Thank awesome. you, Stephen. Well, that was Diana, that was Stephen, who were so nice to sort of share their time with us and provide us with an insight of how the Canadian dream is looking like. Uh, you know what I have been thinking about. I have been already been. I mean, I was, I've always been saying that this is this is a process which by itself is not difficult. It's the competitive nature of the process which is making it difficult. I hope you were able to get some insight today as well. We will do this again, and as usual, stay tuned, uh, stay up to date with us, and I shall see you next time. Bye.